in spite of knowing each other for years, I think this is our first time being recorded together for the public. I'm so excited. Yes, but those secret tapes that the FBI has, that's the, the real thing we, we need to get rid of. Yeah, if that ever comes out, we're sunk. <laughs> uh. <laughs> All right, three, two, one. Welcome, everyone. Season one, episode two to CRM Prov. I'm one of your co-hosts, Mickey Baines. With me, Jamie Gleason. Jamie, uh, you're back with me for another episode. Yes, I have persevered and made it through. Uh, and I'll tell you what, Mickey, I don't know about you, but this time of the year is like, I feel like it's so exciting, right? Like we're both in Pennsylvania. The sun is shining. The trees are in full bloom. The allergies are really kicking it up. Um, all sorts of good things happening. And I'm excited to be back today with our, with our guest for the day, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Brad Weiner. Brad, thanks for coming on and being with us today. Of course, it's my pleasure. I'm super glad to be here. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for the invite. Brad, can, why don't you start us off by just telling us a little bit about, you know, who you are, um, a little bit about what you do now, uh, maybe what you've done in the, like maybe a fun fact about what you've done in the past that our audience can look up online and see if they can find a picture of you doing it. Uh, hopefully there isn't a picture of me <laughs> doing a lot of things online, but uh, so currently I serve as the director of data science at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, and in that role, I lead a group of data scientists and analysts and uh, data engineers to try and help the institution make better uh, decisions and more informed decisions using data. Um, and it's a lot of fun. I've been at CU since June, um, and I'm learning a lot, but it's great after five years of sort of working in the private sector and having the opportunity to experience that, to be back on campus and working um, at a public flagship um, particularly the public flagship in my home state of Colorado. So it's great to be here. Um, before that, I've worked in a bunch of roles in enrollment management and on campus and student affairs, and I've done the whole kind of like higher ed career path. Um, but something that I did way, way, way back in the day, this is going to date me, is I used to work for a company that was responsible for inputting all of the times into movie phone. So when you called up, it would tell you that like, whatever movie you wanted to see was starting at whatever time. And I had to input those in 10 key in military time for the Denver metro area, all of New York City and all of Philadelphia. And on two occasions, I had a bad day and I just wanted people to go see like some terrible John Travolta movie and be like 10 minutes late. So uh, former employers from 20 years ago, I'm really sorry that I deliberately erred and made people miss the previews. I, I maybe you may have gotten the wrong impression about what the show is. It is not a confessional time or anything like that. So when the movie phone people come to get you, which is probably they're on they're on route right now, um, I'm sorry that you that you went that direction. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I I was largely accurate. But we'll just call it human error. We'll call it human error. And that is a, sh a show about technology should talk about human error, but That's, ooh, um, look at you. Look that, was, at that, segue. that was a, that was a long time ago. So uh, two things, if movie phone still exists, <laughs> I am surprised because we have a thing <laughs> called the internet now and phones, and I'm pretty sure people don't use that, but if it does still exist, I would like to personally apologize to my former employer for human error. 
Yeah, and I would think probably if movie phone did exist, probably 2020 was the year that killed it off anyway. I doubt it exists anyway, but the pandemic was certainly probably the end of it. Yes, the movie theater staff now have time to actually answer the phone. Yeah. (laughs) And physically Uh, tell you what time I'm I'm sorry, pandemic, what what are you talking (laughs) about? Uh, That's true, that's true. Uh, A lot of new things happening. well, it, you know, one of the things we were talking about before we recorded, uh, Brad, you, you were talking about, you know, what we're covering here on the show and, and, you know, we're talking about growth rate technology. And you made, I think, a really valid point, one that I think is incredibly important because you were, you were talking about, can we talk about growth in the sense of growth in data? Um, and I know many institutions have, have a lot of data at hand, some they don't know how to use. There's other data, especially as we talk about, as I think in terms of marketing and, and working with prospective students, uh, types of data that many institutions still don't have or making an effort to, to collect. But, but I guess I would just, just toss it back to you and say, you know, when you think about growth through data, um, collecting more data or using more data, what, what's at the top of your mind and, and what are some of the things that you're growing with data uh, at CU Boulder? That's a really great question. And uh, I think that one of the things that it's, it's well documented in higher ed is that your colleges and universities tend to have a lot of information. They tend to have a lot of data. You know, it isn't that hard for us to get um, a data set that has every single student that's been enrolled over ten, a 10 year period, every class they took, every grade that they got in every one of those classes and a bunch of contextual or demographic information about that student. I, I'm not so sure that that's the case across industries. Like it's reasonably easy for colleges and universities to just have data, but they have a much harder time sort of processing that data and turning it into actual information. And so when you talk about growth, you know, we have this sort of exponential explosion of um, access to data. And so imagine going at a lower level at a university, you know, you can go to the kind of learning analytics level where it's how are students doing not just in a class, but how are they doing on um, every one of their exams or every one of their assessments throughout the semester. And then if you go even a level lower than that, you get into this learning analytics space through perhaps the learning management system where you can see that a student is actually logging in or they're clicking around or they're going through modules at a certain pace or they're returning back to certain lesson plans in order to sort of watch the video over and over. Um, And so you can get down to almost this click level of data. The problem is that as much you know, ones and zeros as we have floating around in the cloud, we have a much, much, much harder time growing our sort of knowledge of what that data actually means and what that actually represents. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when when we talk about growth, you know, I think in the enrollment management spaces, it's do we get more students or do we get um, more, you know, a, a different type of student body or do we get more tuition revenue? You know, there's this kind of like growth of stuff But I think a lot of times in the data science world, you know, what we're really trying to grow is we're trying to grow our knowledge base. We're trying to grow our understanding of the way that things work. And in order to do that, you oftentimes have to um, really understand what it is you're actually recording and then be able to analyze and aggregate and sort of figure out what the data are telling you. 
And then at the very highest level, you have to be able to communicate a story that makes sense to a variety of different stakeholders on campus. Um, but in, in my world, if we had no more data ever, other than the same data we have that gets updated for the new students, but we had exponential growth in terms of the knowledge that we, in terms of understanding what that data represents, that would be a gigantic win um, and a huge sort of um, value add for a data science organization within, a, within higher ed and probably within any organization, but particularly within a college or university. I hate to stop right now, but we need to pause for a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Verity. Verity just launched their brand new student information system called Verity Student. Verity Student is everything you wish you had in your student information system and then some. Verity Student combines top-notch, unparalleled compliance and efficiency-boosting processes with the best communication features built into one single platform. Verity Student streamlines academic tracking, document management with an electronic signature, and a built-in powerful contact center with multi-channel communication. The unfortunate complications that human errors prevent are virtually eliminated with their improved process workflow automation that paves the way for data and reporting that you can actually count on. It's the most efficient recruiting, enrollment, and retention process that you have ever seen. Get more than you have with less strain on your budget with Verity Student. Experience the cost efficiencies that their all-inclusive tool provides compared to other, more expensive tools with less functionality. The unified pricing includes a multi-channel communication hub at a fraction of the amount that you'd pay for multiple systems. Say goodbye to inefficiency. Say goodbye to disjointed communications. Say goodbye to Excel when you say hello to Verity Student. At Verity, they only know one direction and one speed, always forward and always fast. Harness the power of one with Verity Student. Request a behind-the-scenes look at their new student information system, Verity Student, at meetverity.com. Again, that's meetverity.com. Whenever I think about data, you know, there's this, there's always this like, this, you know, data always seems to be a goal, right? It's like everyone wants more data, you know, uh, but I feel like, and this is always the separation between smart guys like Brad and guys like me, where it's like, what do you do? Like, at what point is it too much data or are we paralyzed by the amounts of data that we have that are just like, yeah, I don't disagree with you, Brad. I feel like higher ed is like sitting on a treasure trove of of data, like so many points, so many, you know, vehicles and mechanisms and things like that. But I think the average school or the average, you know, uh, admissions officer or, you know, registrar or whatever, they just don't have, whether it's the bandwidth or the tools or, or the kind of the vision of like how the data can be applied. And I feel like in some ways that's like the hard first step. Is that like, am I alone in thinking that Mickey, do you think that sometimes, or is that like, am I just um, kind of out there in my own, in my own little world? Well, let's be clear. You're out there in your own little world, but in this particular point, you know, I, <laughs> in terms of having the data, I mean, they, they do. And I guess it, it really, I'm, I'm going to pivot here to Brad, because one of the things that comes to my mind, um, you know, I'm thinking of smaller institutions who may still have the same quantity or near the same quantity of data, but how do we start small if, we, if we're not doing anything yet with our data? What, are, what is the low hanging fruit we should be doing to help us start growing that knowledge base 
of, of what the data is telling us. Uh, and, and I guess on that scale, as you think about where you are at CU Boulder, you know, from that starting point to the super advanced um, point, where, where are you at CU Boulder? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And, um, you know, I've seen a number of institutions, but I, I try to not benchmark too much because it's always a little bit, uh, it's a little bit tough to, to understand where you are in the grand scheme of things. I think that um, CU Boulder and a lot of institutions like it land in a space, and I'm using a term that I certainly didn't coin. Um, I could get you the exact citation, but a lot of times institutions are what we call kind of data rich and information poor. And so what you have is you have data that's coming in from a lot of different systems. Those different systems were either purchased or built by different units on campus. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily talk to each other that much. Um, and some of those systems are designed for this very sort of specific operational purpose. So it's like, um, I refer to these as like the Hotel California, the data goes in, but it can never leave kind of experience. Maybe a little bit of an esoteric music reference if you're not into the <laughs> Eagles, but um, newer data platforms, you know, they tend to come with or are expected to have an API, you know, an application programming interface where data is easy to get out of and where you can leverage that data into sort of multiple platforms. That hasn't always been the case. And so it's not uncommon to hear about someone's business problem at a university and you say, hey, like, how do you do your job? And you're like, oh, we use the system. And they show you that system and that system does not have an API. And it was designed to do one thing mm -hmm. and it does that thing perfectly well, but it isn't part of what um, we would consider a data ecosystem. It's part of a singular tool. Um, and so, you know, to, to Jamie's point, you know, I think you're, you're absolutely correct. By the way, both can be true that, that he's yeah. right about Thank that you. and he's I, on his own planet. Both. I think we've made that. I think that point has, uh, that's like asked and answered. Okay. That one's all done. <laughs> check, check the box. It was a meatball. <laughs> I had to swing at it. Uh, but, you know, I think one of the um, absolute hardest tasks for a large organization, particularly decentralized organizations to get their get their head around is how do you turn individual sort of data programs and individual sort of data centers into a, a complete data ecosystem where all the systems talk to each other. Um, and I suspect that that's as hard for a large institution like CU Boulder as it is for a small institution um, like, you know, a, a small private liberal arts college someplace else. Um, and so that, that I think is is an ongoing challenge and it's something that some institutions probably do very well and a lot of institutions do okay and some institutions just don't have the capacity or they, they don't have the apparatus to, to put that together. Um, but in terms of like the lowest possible hanging fruit, it's, it's getting to a point where your data is able to provide you with some value. And if it is totally locked up and totally unavailable and inaccessible and non-discoverable, um, I think the, the first thing you can do is come up with a way to sort of set it free and democratize it a little bit. Because what happens then is you end up with this really weird phenomenon. You end up with this diffusion where random people that you never knew had data skills, never knew had that curiosity, never knew that they had the toolkit, suddenly get in touch with you and they're like, hey, I was chipping away at this in Tableau the other day and I found this really interesting thing. Or, you know, I'm beginning to learn Python because I wanted to do it for this boot camp, And um, I pulled data into this, you know, data frame and was munging it around and you 
at least give people a fighting chance to become mm. data people. Um, and without the sort of fuel for that conversation, that, that never happens. Um, so that would, that would be my, my first suggestion is whatever kind of data infrastructure you have, have an organization-wide conversation about how you make that as accessible and as useful as possible. Then from there, you at least have the opportunity to, uh, to leverage that for, uh, for additional growth and gains. So, you know, I think you're bringing up a good point. Um, and, and in my world, that, that tool you're talking about, we call it a point solution. Um, it, you know, it, it's meant to do this one thing. Uh, and, and often when we encounter it, it does that one thing really, really well. Uh, if you had the magic wand, I'm going to put you on the spot. If you, if you had the magic wand, you get to make the decision, you know, what might be the threshold to say, uh, you know, if, if, if I'm arguing, I've got to keep this tool, it is the only tool that can do this, but you can't get any data from it. And, and you know that my alternate solution that you can get all the data you want only gives me 70% of that functionality or, or 50%. What extent should, should I, you know, uh, what percentage of functionality should I give up in order for you? And, and in my world, as I'm working with schools and thinking about CRM, uh, and in our last episode, we were talking to folks that, you know, were assessing they had 32 different types of tools that they were doing, and they try to combine them down as many as you can. You know, that's a painful thing to do. Uh, inevitably, you'll lose some type of functionality. But for the effort, or I guess for the greater good, um, you know, where's that threshold? Where, where do you think we should draw that line? Yeah, that's like a, that's an amazing question, and and I um I think, you know, I I would be remiss to sort of shrink it down as much as I love data into a sort of a singular index or a singular number. Um, ultimately, you know, I I always like to remind myself that um, I sit in a particular uh, you know, in a particular position, and I have a particular viewpoint of the world, which is that like. I want all of the data in order to understand things at a, at a big scaled way. Um, but that that toolkit that seems to be perhaps a bit outmoded or maybe does that one thing, but doesn't have an API, um, that is someone's job. And that's someone's life that they've trained to like learn how to do that very well. Um, and so I, I think that people with magic wands tend to, make a lot of people grumpy and aren't necessarily <laughs> the best colleagues. Um, so I think the, the magic wand would somewhere be, you know, I, just to point to Pareto, you know, I think an 80-20 is always pretty good. That's been demonstrated in a lot of business spaces to be Pareto optimal, you know, where 80% 80, 80 of the benefit is coming from 20% of the worker, if I'm getting that correct. Uh, so 80-20, I think is a, a really good swipe because that's been like kind of empirically tested in the economics literature for a long time. Um, but that being said, the percentage of pain that that might inflict on someone who has spent a long time developing their business processes and their work um, might not be captured by just like a simple rule like that. Um, and what I really encourage people who are doing this kind of work to do is to build relationships to help um, other people understand why getting data out of a system is valuable and to sort of build those alliances so that people can feel like they're part of the bigger conversation. Mm -hmm. um, because if you roll in with a magic wand and you're like, you know, with all due respect, your tool's antiquated and it sucks and we're going to get rid of it. We're going to 
do something new, that doesn't make people feel cozy in their bed, both with in terms of their job security, but also in terms of their kind of like overall contributions and value sure. to the organization. Um, but if you're going to make me put a number on it, I would say probably 80%. If you can yeah. get 80% of the functionality um, or 80% of the value out of anything and you lose 20%. Uh, but then again, there's like this whole other cost side, which is, you know, getting data out of a system that is locked up and is tough to get information out of, that might be the keystone. That might be like the thing you need in order to make significant leaps, exponential leaps in terms of your knowledge, in terms of your ability to do advanced analytics. Um, and so it, 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 it's possible that, that sometimes you just have to take on that 20% and say, it's worth it. Um, and then I'm, I'm also hearing from you that there are times where people have, which I think every university has bumped into this, where they have three different systems that do the exact same thing. And sometimes you just have to say, we are spending money on three things and that is inefficient. And uh, Jamie knows this well about me. I lose my mind at inefficiencies, <laughs> uh, which is highly ironic that I've gone into higher ed because you can find them anywhere. But yeah. uh, a lot of room for growth, a lot, a lot of, growth of room for growth and improvement. Yeah. Well, uh, I but, wish but those, I... those kinds of things, like I think, are are not as hard of a conversation. Hey, we yeah. have three different systems that do the same thing. As an organization that's responsible to the public, that's re and and even if you're a private institution that's in the public's trust. Sure. We cannot buy three of the same thing. That doesn't make any sense. Let's pick the best one and everybody else should just have to deal with that. Basically. As many times as I'm in a room uh, having a conversation like this, I wish everyone was, was as collegial as you were right there. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll just say one of the other dynamics, um, I, I think you referenced it, but didn't explicitly say, uh, you know, what, what's the value of the data that we're pulling out of it um, and, and how, you know, what, what type of information can we come back and say, this is what we can glean from knowing this type of data that we can't get out. And sometimes that might, you know, how valuable is that, you know, versus the 20% that we sure. lose. And, yeah. um, but, but um, it's a great, I, I really appreciate that perspective. Um, we, you know, I have this conversation with, with schools all the time and I think it's good to hear um, from your seat, you know, where your seat would be at that table in a conversation like this. Rarely do I get the conversation with someone on your side that's going to use the data. I only get the conversation with a couple <laughs> of senior leaders and the person who's who's kicking dirt everywhere who doesn't want to give up on a tool and, and for good reason many, many times, yeah. um, you know, and trying to make it is, you know, it's a difficult, difficult decision. For me, where it gets to be the, the trickiest is when we can't define the value of the information we get from the data. If we know that, then we have, a, I think, a clearer argument to make, yeah. but it's when we don't is when it's hardest to flip the person who's really hanging on to their, to their tool, to their baby. Some, yeah, some and that's, the, that's the funny part, because I do think sometimes uh, institutions are in a position where, or, or maybe individuals within an institution are in a position where they don't know what they don't know, right? They don't <laughs> understand that value of the data set because they've always been working in you know, this particular paradigm or they've, they've, uh, you know, we were talking before the show about this, this, this idea and this well-known concept of status quo bias. And I feel like, you know, the irony, Brad, of you saying that you don't like inefficiency yet you work in higher ed. Uh, I mean, it's rich, it's rich because, because the status quo bias of, of things that are, sorry, for the listeners, if you don't know the, what status quo bias is, it's this propensity that we have to basically uh, 
to believe the things that we do are the best things and to just kind of keep them to, to not even, and maybe sometimes even in spite, it's, it's an emotional response, but in spite of the facts, um, we decide to just kind of keep doing what we're doing. And there's all sorts of different, you know, think, ways that you can think about this. Uh, and I think that's the hard part. You know, we've been listening in higher ed for probably the better part of a, a decade, solid decade, where people have been talking about, quote unquote, air quoting here for the listeners, data-driven decisions, right? And what Brad is uh, proposing here is that more institutions need to have access to that data to make those decisions. Yet on the absolute opposite side of that continuum, we have people within the institution who are reluctant to change because the things that they've been doing are the things that they just want to keep doing. And it's just like this, this unbelievable vortex. And, you know, it's a, it's a paradox of, of like these, these two opposite poles, like pulling at each other. It's fascinating. Yeah, I guess, you know, just, just to be clear, one of the, one of the, uh, so there's a couple of things to unpack there, but when I joke about the inefficiencies in higher ed, that's actually one of the most fun things about being a data scientist in higher ed, because like graduate with your PhD in physics from MIT and go work on Wall Street. <laughs> you are going to spend your career running an algorithm that is going to try and scrape a hundredth of a penny off of every millionth transaction. And every last crumb of efficiency has already been found to the point where you're doing this kind of like hilarious exercise. Now, when you work in the public sector and you work on, on an actual like kind of public service problem, you know, how do we reduce the number of workplace accidents? How do we educate our students better? How do we operate more efficiently as a college or university? The inefficiencies that have existed for so long are, you can find them in the data because there are, there are actual opportunities there. So hmm. it's being, um, being a, a allergic to uh, inefficiency is, it, it is kind of ironic that I work in, you know, higher ed where there are inefficiencies, but it also is what makes being a data scientist in higher ed the most fun because every now and then you're able to be like, wow, look at this big thing I found Yeah. where in other organizations, you know, if I worked at Citibank, I might not have that joy all the time. Not to say that those people don't do cool work and that it's not valuable, but like the, sure. inef the efficiencies have been squeezed out of the, the orange, you know, uh, whereas higher ed still has, has some room to go. Hmm. Um, now with status quo bias, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there is certainly a, um, a bias toward doing things the way that they have been done. Um, but I also kind of like to point out that, that higher ed should be respected for its sort of old school ways of doing things. You know, Harvard was founded in 1636. It's hardly one of the um, oldest institutions in the world. I mean, you have institutions, in, you know, in Genoa and Padua that are, you know, they're thousand year old organizations. Um, the University of Colorado, where I uh, work, it was founded in 1876. And so, you know, most startups don't last that long. Most businesses don't last that long. Even, you know, Google and Facebook and these, these tech behemoths that we've gotten so used to in our lives, they're 15, 20 years old. But the question is, will they be around in 120, 130, 150 years? And so maybe there's something to be said about small incremental change and sort of maintaining the sort of brand of an organization over a really long period of time and doing essentially what it has done for, for centuries. Um, because these, le these legacy brands, you know, there's something cool about Levi's jeans. There's something cool about places that have been doing things the same way for a long time because you understand and respect what they're up to. 
Um, but um, there's no doubt that sometimes that becomes a hindrance and that sometimes um, a new and sort of novel way of thinking about a problem is, is a, a hard conversation to have. And that um, one of the ways that people who are good at leading change in higher ed and, and, and you know, producing growth in higher ed are people who are able to make those small changes, but convince people that those small changes will have an outsized impact on the way that, that institutions do business. Um, that's, I mean, that's an, that's an interesting concept and I can appreciate the, you know, <clears throat> you know, as, as a capitalist society, obviously you're right, you know, Citibank and Wall Street and things like that are, you know, they're trying to get, you know, tiny bits of juice out of like, a, a, you know, the pulp or, that's already there. And then you're, there are these macro level problems that we, that we can address and, you know, and even overcome because we have that, you know, those, those inefficiencies, you know, to, to kind of piggyback a little bit on, uh, you know, the length of businesses and you, you were just referencing some historical, uh, some, some historical information, just a little piece of trivia. Movie phone was founded in 1989 and then through a series of mergers and acquisitions, uh, got purchased by companies that you may have heard of, like movietickets.com and Fandango. And I think at one time, maybe AOL bought them. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, I was right. Actually, in early 2020, they declared bankruptcy. And uh, so, so that just speaks to the short life. You know, from 1989, Movie Phone only made it from 1989 till 2020. So we've got a very short lifespan uh, relative to the to the higher ed, the stalwart higher ed industry that, that we're in. So, so go us as we, as we basically take this, you know, what has been status quo and, and, you know, keep, keep moving it along, but making it incrementally more efficient every year. So that's, uh, that's, that's what you bring to the table, Brad. So I'm excited to. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to pour one out for movie phone. Sorry, movie phone. But, <laughs> um, but it, it, is, it is a good conversation. And I think that, that technologists tend to want to look toward tech, tech companies and, and technological organizations as sort of the answer to everything. You know, there's this concept of like techno-utopianism, like, oh, technology is gonna save us. And I, I love technology, I really do. Um, but sometimes we could probably learn a lot from the companies that have, um, that have adopted or grown uh, slowly and methodically and have at least tried to stick to their kind of original mission. Um, but I might just be stuck in the past. Like it's possible that there are people, there are people out there that are like the entire higher ed model is just, uh, broken and needs to go away and needs to be replaced with something else. So maybe at uh, 41 years old, I'm the dinosaur in the room and I'm not responding to, to, um, the overall sort of context of, of how society views higher ed. So that's, that's certainly possible. I that, don't think it is, but it's possible. That, that might be another episode in the making yes. right there. Yeah. Uh, well, I do have a, a, one other question for you, Brad. Um, you know, as, now that you're back in uh, the, the light side, because I consider uh, our side the dark side, or I'm told I'm on the dark side. So now that you're in the, the light side uh, of things, uh, the right side, maybe, um, you know, where, you know where, where are you finding new types of data um, or new ways or approaches of getting different data you haven't had before? Where, where, where are you finding that? Or have you begun looking there at CU Boulder? Yeah, so I think that um, if you're talking on the, on the student side, yep. um, 
you know, and, and this has been a, a real interesting sort of conversation um, in, in the context of, of COVID, you know, in terms of the pandemic is we, we had this tragic, horrific, um, exogenous shock to our entire society, not just to higher ed, but all of a sudden we have a bunch of professors who probably for years were like, oh, do I have multiple modes? Do I switch modalities? Do I teach some of this online? And then they had to. Um, and so an exogenous shock to the system basically forced behaviors that may have been kind of like halfway at some point. So now we have, I think, a lot more information about how students perform and how students sort of interact in um, online courses. And we also have information about whether or not they like it. You know, we learned a lot about their preferences and about their, uh, you know, their experiences online, you know, basically doing uh, school remotely. Um, the other thing is that obviously we needed to manage this in a lot of ways. And so there's always been a little bit of like kind of it's learning management systems, you know, there's been sort of like not full coverage or it's sort of tepid usage. And there's just like a much richer set of data that came in from people using things like, you know, online systems. I, I don't want to, I never like to specifically name one or the other because, mm -hmm. you know, one, I don't want to endorse them as being good or bad. And also, candidly, I forget what all the names are. So we'll just own that. <laughs> but we, we now have a little bit more information about, um, about how that works. We also, uh, one of the things that was really interesting is I, uh, I work with someone who is our sort of our Zoom administrator and Zoom has all of this data and they have an API. Um, and it, it is, you know, we haven't even really gone in and like done um, any sort of work there. And it's, uh, it's a little bit unclear what kind of questions we'd want to ask, but you know, you all of a sudden have all of these students who are dialing in, dialing in at different times and they're, they're interacting in different ways. So we really kind of broadened out the sort of space that higher ed lives in. And it, even if we didn't broaden it, we certainly deepened it because there's the possibility that 10% or 12% or 15% of professors were routinely using the learning management system. And then all of a sudden that became much higher than that. I don't have specific yeah. numbers, but people were like, well, I can't just hand things out in class. I have to distribute it through our system. Um, and so that's, that's been, I think, some, some new information. We also are, have a constantly shifting sort of technology landscape when it comes to communications. So, uh, you know, social media is always a very rich kind of vein, but also the ways in which uh, students, you know, interact with the institution are, are constantly changing. Um, but there's, there's also just been, I think, um, some really interesting opportunities that have, that have come up. And it's not necessarily that there's new data or different data, but there have been things that we've maybe thought about um, that haven't been fully done before. And so I, I'd point to my, my colleague, um, I won't name who this is in case she doesn't want to become podcast famous, but, uh, and I know your guys' listenership is like in the millions. And so it, yeah, like, we, you don't want her to, you know, get a, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of tweets or whatever. But one of the questions early on in, in the pandemic was how do we minimize the number of interactions, the number of unique contacts that a particular student has for straight up epidemiological reasons. Like if this student can be on campus and can only interact with 15 other people, then we're dramatically reducing that student's sort of bubble and all of those students' bubbles. And we can potentially reduce the spread of this deadly virus that we're all very much freaked out by. Um, but there's this upshot, which is that 
educational pedagogical people for a long time have talked about the impact of cohorts and have talked about the impact of if you work together and you learn together and you live together, there are these sort of cohort style benefits. And there are a bunch of programs like Posse and others that bring in groups of students specifically for that purpose. So in the past, there might not have been like this demand to put students in cohorts and really learn what it looks like when you put them together. But we were able to sort of double dip in terms of having both an epidemiological sort of a public health hmm. rationale, as well as a um, as well as a you know sort of pedagogical educational rationale for doing this. And so it's not necessarily that we have more data, but we also had the opportunity to try some things um, that uh, that we haven't done in the past. And it was a really I, I love talking about this particular problem because. Um, it's an incredibly complicated computer science problem to put, you know, it's called like a combinatorial optimization problem. You know, you have to figure out ways that all the people who are taking calculus and physics can be together, but are still able to not be with these other people who are taking similar classes. So it was a, a very complicated thing to think through. Um, but again, you know, what, what I would suggest is that higher ed could do itself a lot of favors and we could learn a lot by taking the data we have and trying to use those data to implement policies that allow us to think about the educational experience in a different way. Those are a couple of examples of things that we've, we've attempted and we've had the opportunity to learn from um, over, over the course of the last year or so. Hmm. Well, uh, we are actually running out of time, Brad. And I know that you know, you're like a, like a little engine that could once you get going talking about data points and, and uh, and Mickey and I, when it comes to like inter bringing that data into you know technology and especially into the higher ed enrollment world, I feel like we, I know I have like lots of thoughts and questions. Um, uh, I guess the uh, the the big the big takeaway uh, from this that I'm kind of walking away with is like if you're an institution, you're listening to this, figure out a way to free your data. And, and in doing so, it's a, you know, I like what you said, Brad, is that you'll find people who are interacting with data that you maybe never thought were there. And again, I feel like my lens is always this like small liberal arts institution. I, that's like my, my mindset is always uh, with them. But I feel like this is, a, this is a, a paradigm that we find ourselves in where as technology increases, so do those data points that then increase that we can that we can mine and understand more about our students and then feed them back into other pieces of technology to understand and it's like a it's a flywheel that once we get understanding how to use it and and really like what are our goals with the data what are the growth goals what are the things that we want to push um the the levers we want to pull maybe is a better way to pull it, it is uh is you know it's it it becomes that flywheel and like starting the flywheel is the hardest part using it to to reach those growth goals i think is is a critical factor that a lot of schools especially you know in the near future you know they have to wrestle with that and uh so i appreciate your time uh and i i think that this is a fascinating topic that that will continue to be in the foreground in higher ed for sure i i, I concur I, I, go ahead sorry. please no, I was going to say, I concur very much with Jimmy. I think, you know, this, um, you know, we talk a lot with institutions about their strategic plan and, and their, their 
big high level goals or some schools call it their pillars, uh, right? You know, what are these foundational things? And then that, you know, we're, if we're going to make data driven decision, having those those goals in place to know how the data can help inform decisions to meet and achieve, you know, those plans um, are, are key. And, and that's where weighing out, you know, the value uh, of things that get in, that could be in the way or preventing you from doing some of that. You know, what's the value of, of, of data that certain tools have that you can't integrate? What's the value of the functionality to provide the folks serving students to the best of their ability? You know, finding that, because there's tough decisions that come along with that in order to truly make full use of the data. Um, so go ahead, Brad. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you, both, uh, you both nailed it. And um, it is a really interesting conversation and it is really hard to establish a culture of data-driven decision-making on campus. People want to lead with data. Um, it's just that sometimes getting the raw data to the right people to produce the right insights, to produce the right story, to communicate that to the right people um, is very challenging. So I, I don't want to cast a sort of pessimistic eye on this. I think that there's nothing but optimism and room for growth in the future. Um, and the folks out there who are listening, if you are a data person and you like working in higher ed, um, it's nothing but blue sky. There are an absolute like wide open playing field. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I maybe made that comment about Wall Street earlier. And probably if I worked in finance, I would say the same thing. There's a wide open world of imagination uh, to test. But um, if you can get your data out there and you can kind of go through that process and develop this culture, um, you can learn um, what, what I would argue is essentially a limitless number of things about the way your organization operates. Mm. Great. Well, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. It's great to uh, see both of you. And uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed my time. So thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks so much. And we hope that everyone has enjoyed this, uh, this segment.